This is the What Matters Most podcast. A 100% listener-supported program. And now, here is your host, Paul Samuel Dolman. Welcome back to What Matters Most. I thank you to everyone all over the world who tunes in. Different countries, one of the upsides of the internet, which there are a few. Thank you. Keep the notes coming. If you wrote me, you got a note back because I love, love hearing from you. And then I always try to write everyone back. I have the most inspirational, courageous guest today who I've seen for years and is a preeminent civil and trial attorney in California, New York, and who basically represents sexual abuse survivors and is a nationally renowned advocate for legal and cultural and political change for the support of victims of sexual abuse. She also won the Arthur Ashe Award for Courage in 2018 from the ESPYs. But the work she's doing is just, it's incredible. It's inspiring. Such a courageous and beautiful soul. What an honor to finally welcome the family. My new friend, Sarah Klein. Thanks for coming on. Oh, you are so sweet. I'm so happy to be here with you. Right back at you, sweet soul. Thank you. I could have done 45 minutes of just gushing and then wrapped. <laughs> Sounds good to me. <laughs> I like it. I have followed you and I've watched. And then as I dove in even deeper, I had this question and you may not be able to answer it. I wondered, were you born with all that inner strength or did the events in your life that occurred create in you a need to be courageous? That I, I've never been asked such a great question. Um, I don't think I was born with it and I still would not credit myself with having it. And I say that because I feel like lately, especially I have been given this sort of poster child, um, you know, the one who made it through the other side, look at her, she's all shiny and life is good for her. And I never, ever want to portray that that's what healing results in. Um, And I also never want to portray that that's what my life (laughs) looks like. Um, it's, it's a work in progress and, uh, you know, I want all survivors, but just anybody facing any kind of adversity, not to look at me and say, you know, look at her, she could come out the other side and she's all shiny and perfect. And her life must be perfect. It's more like I work my tail off at it every day. And I take a couple steps forward and a bunch of steps back, just like everybody else. Um, I think the real resilience comes in just showing up on that journey. Um, some days showing up on that healing journey looks like getting out of bed it looks like asking for help. It looks like um, calling, you know, a friend or another survivor. Some some days it looks like helping other people who were in your shoes, you know, at the beginning of their legal process. So my point is, I don't even necessarily associate myself with having that kind of worldly uh, strength and resilience. I think I struggle like everybody else. Um, I think the key is just staying true to the course and not trying to be perfect. What a beautiful answer. It's so grounded. I'm going to ask a question I don't hear asked a lot, and it, it really bothers me too, but 
and and really about the question I'm going to ask is why is sexual abuse so widespread? Oh, well, you know what? I think it always has been. Um, I think it's just in recent years, we've really shined a light on it in a way we never did before. Um, I think there are a lot of reasons for that, but I think the that sort of turning point was seeing groups of women in my case, or little girls, groups of people standing up and saying it out loud for the first time. Um, I know others have said it out loud, but the strength in numbers kind of piece of it, one after the next, after the next. And I, I don't say that to minimize our story, but it made for a good media hook, I think. Um, but then it captured the world's attention and people were like, oh my gosh, if that 12 year old can do it, well, I can do it. And and if those women can come together, then our group of Boy Scouts can come together, you know, and I think it it empowered um, the formerly disempowered to to almost make it make it I hate the word cool, but make it, you know, the right thing to come out and to start saying, Hey, you know, this happened to me and it wasn't okay. And I want to do something about it. And I really want to make sure this never happens to another person. And that's something I hear with my cases. I'm a civil lawyer representing survivors of sexual abuse. That's all I do. That's all my entire firm does. And never does a client come to me and say, hi, I'd like to falsely accuse somebody so I can make money. (laughs) They also never come to me and say, hi, I'd like to make money. They come to me and say, I want to make sure this never happens again. I want my story to mean something. I want, you know, what happened to me to have some purpose other than the suffering that I felt. And so how can you help me do that? Um, so I think it's always been happening. I think we've just gotten bolder and braver and and more sort of sympathetic and empathetic to to this issue. And the media is less less afraid to talk about it. Um, survivors are less afraid to talk about it. People who love survivors are less afraid to talk about it. And those of us with very loud mouths <laughs> just continue and continue and continue and continue to hopefully make the path easier for others. Well, you have to talk about it because it thrives in darkness and secrecy and shame. Yep. Amen to that. And most cases don't get reported. I think most people get away with it, sadly. I think you're right. I think you're right. And I think, you know, our case was was a multi-victim case, but I think, you know, obviously the majority are not. And um, they happen within the home. They happen um, with, you know, neighbors, people we know. And it really boils down to that sort of he said, she said, or he said, he said, or whatever it is. Um, and, and they don't get reported. Or if they do get reported, there is not um, enough for a prosecutor to move on it. And then the person gives up hope, which is heartbreaking. And I agree with you. It's not recent. I think it's been going on forever. And sadly in my life, the deeper I've gone with friends and people and women I've been with as partners, almost everyone's been touched almost directly. I hate to say that phrase. That sounds weird, but it's, I somehow avoid it. It's almost like it's a lottery win. It's so common. And I was in situations where it might've happened. I'm just lucky it didn't happen. Yeah. Yeah. I do think almost everybody's been touched and, you know, I'll, I'll speak at an event and 
inevitably there will be a line out the door when I'm done talking of people that want to either say me too, or say me too. And I'm actually disclosing this to somebody for the first time today, because you had the guts to go up there on a microphone (laughs) and say that, and I don't want to leave you out there on your own. You know what I mean? It's amazing. How important is that for the people listening who have obviously had experiences like this, just to be able to tell someone and make it real by sharing it? Yeah, it's powerful. It's powerful. I spoke to a a woman yesterday, 42 years old, mother, um, has an MBA professional. And she said to me, I'm really nervous for this call because I've never said this out loud before. What happened to me? You were only a little girl of eight years old when you first met Larry Nasser. Will you talk about all that a little? Yeah. Yes. And I have, yeah, sure. I have a seven-year-old daughter now and nothing puts it in perspective like that. Um, the innocence, the purity. Yeah. And I know that I saw you had daughters and one was seven. Yeah. She's seven years old. She's so pure. You know, she comes home every day talking about the monkey bars at school. And today I could skip a monkey bar. I mean, it, it, she is so pure. We, we read Curious George, you know, last night, like that's the level of a seven-year-old or eight-year-old brain. Um, and so when people ask me all the time, like, you know, when the first time it happened, why didn't you report it to the police? <laughs> you know, And I'm going like, I, I was reading Curious George. Like I believed grownups. I, I thought that this was normal. Not even did I think it was normal. Like I literally, my daughter trusts whatever I tell her. You know, she she trusts that I have her best interests at heart, but, you know, she's not out there assessing whether something is sexual abuse and deciding her little seven-year-old self to go to the police station, you know? Um, And on top of that, it was the eighties. And so we were leaving our doors unlocked. We lived in Michigan. It was like, go ask the neighbors for a stick of butter. You know, it was like very, in a way like this idyllic, little college town. Everybody kind of knew everybody. Um, and I went to, to this gymnastics place. I started when I was five, I got better, you know, pretty quickly. And I think the kids are are raising, rising in the ranks even faster, which is scary in, in elite sports these days, you know, cause they've caught on the smaller their bodies, the better they'll be. Um, and so I, I got pretty good and eight years old, um, Larry Nasser came into the gym and said to our coach, coach John Gettert, um, Hey, I, I just graduated Michigan state for, I think it was kinesiology and I'm trying to get into medical school. So can I volunteer here? I'll help you out. I'll take care of the girls injuries and bodies and I'll get my experience to put on my resume so I can apply for medical school at Michigan state. And my coach goes, yeah, sure. You know, there's a back room over there. Um, the gym was in an abandoned high school. And so there was this back room with those like heavy metal high school doors, um, with the push bar. And so he goes, yeah, set up back there. So he sets up back there and has a bachelor's in kinesiology, which I don't know how qualified that, that makes him, but he, um, 
he starts treating us in, in, in sort of as a doctor right out of the gate, you know, I'm going to do this and do that. And, um, one of the fathers of, of one of my teammates was a physician and donated an old treatment table of his so that we would have a place to sit back there and, or lay down back there. And it just started what became a three decade relationship between those two men, my coach and my trainer, um, who then became a doctor of the coach being so mentally and physically abusive, um, sending us back to that and instilling, I, I can't even begin to explain the level of fear and like trauma of, you know, having him screaming at us. And you think like Bella Caroli was bad. Um, I know some people will recognize that name, the, the famous Eastern European, um, coach of all the Olympic greats, Mary Lou Retton included. Um, but my coach modeled himself on Bella Caroli, you know, if Bella can win, then I'm going to win. And so he would break us down, um, terrify us, hurt us. And then we would go back to Larry, who was this like nerdy, sweet, unassuming. I cannot stress to your listeners enough. Pedophiles, sexual predators, are not wearing black capes. They're not like hiding behind a dumpster in an alley, ready to jump out when it's three in the morning, you know, and you know, whatever that, that is not how it works. 99.99999% of the time they instill themselves in the community. They become your friend. You trust them. You love them. You like the parents at the gym would say my mother included Larry Nassar would not hurt a fly. I would have said that. I mean, talk about a nerd goof, totally just so sweet, um, so warm, always ha had a, a hug. Like he's the guy that you would trust your kid with, not the guy that you would not trust your kid with. Um, and that's why they're so good at what they do is the parents trust them. The community trusts them. I have a pediatrician pedophile case right now, um, that I'm working on where the guy got away with it for 40 years. He pled guilty to it. And he was on the school board, same as Larry Nasser, big in the church, same as Larry Nasser, volunteering at all the kid events, same as Larry Nasser. The whole community adored him, same as Larry Nasser. They 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 make themselves into the all roads lead to Larry Nasser, pillar of the community, who would never harm a fly, who also is sexually attracted to tiny kids and is abusing them every day, every hour in his house, in the gym, at the Olympics, in his basement, you know, at the games, at the whatever, you know, and, and under the guise of medical treatment and under the guise of the whole community is obsessed with this person in the best kindest way. So, you know, I don't, I don't know that there's always a good cop and bad cop when I see these, these situations, because this is what I work in day in, day out. Sometimes there is just the sexual predator, but in my situation, there was the bad cop, um, being coach Sean Gettert. And then the good cop, which was ironically Larry Nassar, I will add for your listeners. Some people know, some people don't John Gettert died by suicide, um, two years ago this month. 
gosh, maybe even around this day, that's giving me the creeps. Um, he died by suicide on the very day he was charged by the Michigan attorney general's office for physically, um, emotionally and sexually abusing his athletes charged with 24 felony counts. So if that tells you what kind of a guy he was, he was also the gold medal winning 200, uh, 2012, um, fierce five head coach. <laughs> so they, they were getting away with it over there. They were producing champions, um, by sort of kicking the ball, i.e. the athlete back and forth between the two of them. Um, but they were also obviously destroying hundreds and hundreds of lives. It's amazing they got away with it so long, but isn't that because a lot of people looked away even when they saw some things that they should have reported or knew some things they should have told people about? Yeah, I, I at first was was amazed by that when I went through my own case, but now having done so many cases that really have the same or similar footprint, I'm not amazed by that anymore. It's what happens. It's what happens is when people see, I don't know if it's the psyche trying to protect themselves. I don't know if it's, I, I, I see a lot of times it being tied to financial compensation. If you look the other way, then you won't lose your job. Um, if you look the other way, then you don't have to stand up against the community and be torn up, you know, if you, if you, your name won't be dragged through the mud. Right. And so, so I see people and entities looking the other way in every single one of my cases, it's sort of become the norm, which is, is sick. Um, and at hindsight, you're going, well, what was that nurse thinking? What was that parent thinking? What was that, um, doctor in the hospital when they got that complaint? Why didn't they call the police? Um, I think that's a big conversation to have about the human psyche, but it's also about incentives. They were incentivized to look the other way. You know, USA Gymnastics and the Olympic Committee were incentivized not just to look the other way, but to actively, with the Federal Bureau of Investigation, cover it up, take active steps to cover it up. And that's not just my hearsay opinion. You know, that was in front of Congress. We learned that under oath sworn testimony in front of the United States Congress. That's what happened. Um, but be, you, you then come to learn, oh, well, there was a job at stake for this person. And there were millions of dollars at stake for these two organizations. The executives at USA Gymnastics and the Olympic Committee are bonus based on how many gold medals Simone Biles brings home. So what do you do at all costs? You put that girl out there and you, you tape up those ankles. I don't care if her leg is broken, make her perform, make her perform. I want my million dollars, you know, let Larry do whatever he does, which was clearing athletes when they should not have been cleared to compete. Why? So he could take them in a back room and sexually abuse them. <laughs> Um, so, so, it, you know, I, I wish I could say that was unique to my case. It's not, I see it in all, I see it in the church cases. I see it in the boy scout cases. I see it in the school cases. I mean, talk about, you know, uh, the cover-ups in, in public schools, but just the same in private schools. I live on a property 
next to one of the most expensive, most prestigious private schools in my state. I hear their bells ringing every night in my house. I could walk there right now. Um, the amount of abuse, I'm not accusing that school, but the amount of abuse that's happening in those schools where the parents think I'm paying 60 grand a year. That's not happening to my kid. Love what you're saying, Sarah, but you don't know my community. You know, we're safe. My kid goes to 60 grand a year school. They have alarms on everything. There are background checks for everybody. Newsflash, I'm really sorry. I hate to tell everybody listening, but it is happening in your community. It is happening to a child that you know, it's likely happening to a child that you love or a family member that you love. I'm really, really, really hating to be the bearer of bad news, but open your eyes. And when you do open your eyes and you have these conversations and you ask people and really listening, really listen about how they're doing, um, you're going to learn things that you might not want to learn. And that might be ugly and horrible and, and awful, but you're also going to be saving lives. And isn't society in many ways, society at large, it's systematically against women. It's generally anti-women. It's misogynist and to all different varying degrees. They're always trying to take away your rights. You make less money if you do the same job. Child marriage is still legal in like a lot of states, which is nuts. Control your bodies. The system is evil and misogynist against women. It's anti-life, anti-women. It claims to be other but the facts are the facts if you're neutral and you're looking at it. Yeah, a hundred percent, a hundred percent. And I, you know, my area of the world where I work on statute of limitations reform for children who have been abused, sexually abused as children, I see that play out every day. Um, why does the state of Pennsylvania have terrible law when it comes to child sexual abuse? Who is that benefiting? Right. And then you look at where the money comes from and you look at, you know, the, the legislators who oppose these bills to protect children who are abused as children. And you go, oh, OK, that makes sense. You scratch their back. They scratch yours. Um, it makes sense. And what what gets me every time? I mean, you talk about women's rights. How many women are actually on on the opposite side of women? <laughs> You know, I mean, that that's an inflammatory thing to say potentially, but, but the women, the mothers who are blocking bills that would benefit children who have been abused as children blows my effing mind every single time. Um, but you have to ask why and money speaks, power speaks, reputation speaks. Um, and, and that's where where things get really, really messy. Because if you, if you are like me and you think you can figure it all out, like you just do this and we'll have this law and everybody will be protected. I've still to this day, I'm the eternal optimist, believe it or not. Um, you know, I'm like, if we could just make it look like this and then, then kids would be safe. Um, it doesn't work like that. You have to, you have to, you have to fight to, to do the very thing that you think should be common sense. That's a great perspective. And it's the Stockholm syndrome all the time. And also the religious right where the women want to be subjugated or have less power, less rights. And they fight the women who try to freedom the most, try to fight the ones who try to attack the abuser. It's like my friends who were police officers said, the scariest thing is a domestic violence 
situation because when you go in and pull the guy off the woman who's beating her up, she attacks you. Not every time, but that's the conditioning, the programming, the brainwashing. And that's what trauma does, which is just, it's horrible, isn't it? Yeah, that's trauma. That is absolutely trauma. Um, it, it changes the brain. And I, I'll tell you when you're in it, you don't see it. <laughs> you know, I've, I've worked with many um, survivors of, of well-known cults. Um, and we, we've talked about, you know, coercive control and in these people who are educated and lovely and bright and, and sometimes adults when they are indoctrinated, they're not little kids. They were of sound mind and of sound age when they became involved in the cult and there's, they will describe that there was literally nothing anybody in their lives could say or do that could get them out of it or give them another perspective because they were so brainwashed and were so deeply in it um, that that there was nothing anybody could say or do. And they had to, they had to get out sort of on their own or the whole shebang had to fall apart and the cult leader had to go to prison. Um, but there are still people, I, I watched some of those documentaries, you know, on HBO or Netflix or whatever, there are, there are cult leaders in prison and there are still followers that still buy it all and are still living their lives to, to, to free that person. It's, it's. It's a whole other other conversation. I think the psychology of this, but but definitely the, the same types of psychology show up in a lot of different situations like this. We had a president with a cult like following. He even said, "I could shoot someone; it wouldn't matter," and it was true. It's incredible. Yep. Power of the cult. Let no let no information get in the way. That don't let any lie get in the way of the truth. It's crazy. Yeah. Sarah, when did you decide to dedicate your life to this cause? Yeah, that's a great question. So I was a lawyer for many years before I went through the Nassar case as a plaintiff. And it was a an arduous process, even knowing what I knew about the legal system and about what it would mean. I fully underestimated what it would be like going through it my very self um, as a plaintiff. And so, um, you know, I went through it, it was really hard. And I found myself, um, as we went through it, you know, there was a wide age gap between myself, one of the oldest and first survivors of, of Nasser and Gettert, um, and the youngest, some of whom were under 10 years old. Um, and, Going through the process, there would be, we had an amazing legal team and I can't say enough about them. And I work with many of them today and adore them. Um, but there would be a disconnect between, you know, kind of the, the middle-aged male contingent and the, the female survivor slash mother lawyer who is trying to make it digestible and to really boil it down to kindergarten terms for a 10 year old or a 15 year old or a parent who had never gone to high school. You know what I mean? And to just make it as simple for them as possible and to make it as low stress. Like we've got this, you don't need to worry about this. You don't need to stress about that. You don't know what this kind of emotion is. Don't worry. It's not even 
you don't even have to think about that. Just go home, take care of yourselves, and we'll let you know when there's anything to worry about. And there won't be anything to worry about because we've got you. You know, um, I'm a mom. I have two little girls. And, and so I sort of naturally fell into that role, understanding full well what was going on legally. And it was a war. It was an all out battle war um, legally. And it went on for years and years. Um, and I was right at the front lines. I had a seat at the table. I was involved. And um, I said to myself when it was over, or even before it was over, somebody's got to do this. <laughs> you know, Somebody's got to be able to either be the translator or just be on that team. Um, and thankfully, I joined a team um, that I that I couldn't be prouder of. This is all we do and all our firm cares about. Our firm, almost everybody is a parent. Um, we have a lot of survivors on our team and we're not afraid to go all the way. Um, it's funny since the Me Too movement, and I'm not talking about any lawyers in particular, but you've seen sort of, a, well, not a little, a huge wave of people saying, oh, I do sex abuse too. <laughs> you know, I don't just do car crashes anymore. I do child sex abuse. Why? Because you saw some of the, the results that we got um, in NASA. You hear half a billion dollars and you say, well, I'm not going to just do tickets anymore. I do child sex abuse too. Um, and so everybody, I see commercials, I see billboards, I see banners, and I'm going, okay, th these people don't know how to do these cases. They definitely don't know how to do it with the care and understanding that we do, and they don't know the legal implications. They're going to get these cases dismissed in about five seconds. Um, they're going to re-traumatize their clients. They're going to take away their ability to get access to the court if they mess them up. Um, so I've seen a lot of that, tons of that actually. So I put my 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 hat in the ring, um, you know, few several years ago now, and and it's been it's been no looking back. And and I hate to say, but I also love to say, um, th there's no shortage of work by any means. We turn away about ninety eight of the percent of the cases we get just because we can't. Um, we can't pull pull things out of thin air. We don't want to overpromise, and if we can't get a good result for our client, we're not going to traumatize you and take your money. Um, and there's no shortage, but I'm also proud to say there's no shortage because I know how well we're doing our jobs, and I know we do it better than anybody else. And I know I say to all my clients, and I mean this with every fiber of my being, it's our goal and my goal to leave you better off than how I found you. And if I don't do that. I'm not doing my job and I have to go to bed every night looking at myself in the mirror. I have to explain to my kids what I do. And if I can't, if I can't really vow to make that my goal, then I need to go do something else. Um, so yeah, I'm, I'm super proud of the work we do and, and it's really hard, but, but it's also really rewarding. Has it helped doing this work with your own inner healing through the years? Absolutely. And it's given meaning to what happened to me. It makes, it gives me this pretty little way to say like, oh, it didn't just happen in vain. I'm so grateful that it happened. On the other hand, I also have to listen to a horrific stuff and people say to me, how do you handle it? And, and I really haven't had a great answer for that. 
other than I have a, a good and loving support system, but I also still go to trauma therapy and I still go to therapy and I still, you know, I, I don't want to, um, I don't want to make myself look like I have it all figured out. I think that's super important because I, I want to be relatable and that, you know, I, I still have bad days. You know, I listen to stories and I say, oh my God, that's the I felt sick, you know, um, but, you know, I keep, I keep doing it and I do continue, um, my, my very dedicated work to trauma therapy and into the healing process. How are you today? How do you feel today inside? That's a beautiful question. Thank you so much for asking that. You know, today I'm having a, a, a good day. A, a month ago, um, CBS this morning did a beautiful, beautiful Sarah Klein, This Is Your Life seven minute <laughs> video. Um, it was called A Note to Self. And and it was it was beautiful. Oprah's done a note to self, Michelle Obama, like, you know, and they're like, Sarah Klein, will you do one? They come, they film me, they film the backs of my daughter which which is my choice in terms of their privacy um and then it's all set to music and edited and there was childhood footage of my my innocent little self my daughter's age that I had never actually seen before um and it's a beautiful beautiful piece I'm so grateful to them but you watch that and you're like what the hell that's the saddest story I've ever seen in my life. And I've taken so many steps forward. And then for two days, I don't think I got out of bed, you know, and you, you have to relive. Oh my God, that's the saddest thing I've ever heard. So, you know, I, I, in general, on balance, my friend, I'm doing, I'm doing really, really well. Um, there are times where I'm human and you, you still have that, like, why am I on a podcast today? I'm just little Sarah Klein from Okemist, Michigan, right? Why am I on Netflix? I'm just Sarah Klein from Okemist, Michigan. Why am I like all these, why am I, in, why is Gail King, who I used to love on the Oprah show saying my name out loud? How does she know me? Right. You still have those moments of dissociation where you're like, this is my life. There's no other way to put it. Like, how is this my life? You know, um, it, it's strange. It's, it's, it's weird. It can be really healing and really traumatizing at the same time. Those two things coexist. I'm doing really well. And I'm also really struggling. Those two things also really coexist. I love that you gave everyone permission there with the whole spectrum. And that's beautiful, you know, because, and I'm sure people are listening who have yet to come forward or wherever they are. Before we let you go, what inspiring word would you say to them? Wherever they are on the journey, it might be someone young who's 16. We have a lot of young people that listen. It could be someone older who hasn't really yet pro uh, processed this. You know, it might be someone who knows something who hasn't come forward that's seen other things. What would you say to these people from your heart to theirs? Thank you. For, first of all, I would say you're absolutely not alone, whether you've been through it yourself, whether you're watching somebody go through it now, whether you, um, you know, wherever you're at, you are not 
alone in whatever adversity you're facing, whether you're in a situation of domestic abuse, whether you're 16 and your parents are getting divorced and that's earth shattering. I never judge anybody's pain. Pain is pain is pain. Um, if you're listening and you go, whoa, she's been through a lot. What I'm struggling with is my divorce. Why do I feel so horrible? And like, I can't take another breath. I see you. That's your pain. I, I don't judge that. I, mine is not worse than yours. It's just pain, period. We're literally all in this thing called being a human being together. Um, you're not alone. The other thing I would say is coming forward isn't a magical thing. That doesn't mean going public. That doesn't mean filing a police report. Maybe it just means having a conversation, telling somebody what's on your heart for the first time, being honest for the first time, telling a therapist something for the first time. There is absolutely no shame in asking for help. Um, I go to two different therapists, a regular one and a trauma one. Um, and I scream that from the rooftops because again, I don't want you thinking I have this figured out and that my life is shiny and perfect. It's not. Um, having to, I had coffee this morning with a complete stranger, not for me to help her for her to help me. She, she was somebody that was recommended to me by a friend and just going and reaching out and talking about what's on your heart um, and on your mind and what you're struggling with. You don't have to leave your house. There is this strange thing, as you mentioned, called the internet and, <laughs> and, you know, social media, and it's strange for good or for evil. I think it works both ways. Um, there's a beautiful community of survivors of, you know, sober people of ex divorce, you know, people have gone through divorce. Divorces. I don't care what it is that you're struggling. You can find that online. And if you need to hide between a computer screen behind that, you can, you're not alone. Your life matters. Otherwise you wouldn't be here. Um, and whatever it is that's on your heart or mind, somebody wants to hear that. I want to hear that, um, as your, your, your sister in, in life, as your fellow human being on this, on this journey called life, um, keep going. It does get better, even though it sometimes feels like it, it isn't, um, you matter, you matter and you are not alone. You've been listening to the What Matters Most podcast, a 100% listener-supported program. If you feel inspired, please go to our Patreon page at www.patreon.com backslash whatmattersmost and join our family. So until the next time, stay inspired and in the light.